In this episode, Mark Petit, CFO at Connect Ventures, describes the role of a CFO in a venture fund, his approach to building leverage across the team, and why the smart selection of tools is critical to working efficiently. Hi, I'm Ross, and this is the CFO Playbook. Each week, you'll get insights from world-class finance leaders to help you grow your company and yourself and face the challenges required of today's CFOs. Mark, thanks for joining us on the podcast today. No worries, Ross. Thanks. Great to be invited. I'd like to start actually, Mark, by, so you've, you've had a very interesting journey and background to where uh, you are now as, as CFO at Connect. So you actually CFO at a fund, and, and we, were, we were speaking about this earlier, but being a CFO at a fund, I'd imagine, has very different demands at being a CFO at, you know, within industry and actually within an operating company. And you must see that, of course, because you're investing in, in a variety of different companies as a fund. Can you speak about the differences of, of what is like for your role as a CFO at a fund versus perhaps the, the role of a CFO, a more traditional company and industry that's operating? All of my kind of post-accountancy qualification experience has been within funds. Uh, actually, I did a very short stint at a fund administrator for about 12 months. And then after that, I went straight into Balderton Capital, which is the Series A fund. And I spent five years at Balderton. And after that, I did five years at, I've been at Connect now for five years as well. So I don't have direct industry experience to draw upon, but I can certainly tell you some of the sort of unique aspects of, of working in a fund, particularly at Connect, where I joined and I was the first employee there, joining three partners. So kind of built the finance function from, from the ground up. Well, what was that like then? So setting up the finance function from the ground up where there's, there's nothing for you to inherit. So it's open for you. So you, you, I guess there's not a lot of legacy to tear out, but, but there's probably a lot of work to put new stuff in. I mean, it'd be a little unfair on, on me to say there was nothing at all there to, to build up on. So I don't want Pietro to get, to get too upset with me, but there's a kind of like a skeleton in place and the team worked quite closely with a, with a couple of outsourced providers, but really they needed to begin dedicating more of their, their time to the investment side of things. So really my role was to come in and, and take as much of that kind of finance slack away from them so they could focus on the key things where they can make a big difference. So when I first came in, it was really a case of uh, seeing who those service providers were, making sure I'd made all the relevant introductions and then actually working out what I wanted to bring back in myself and have ownership of and kind of work that out from the bottom. So I really started with the basics. I brought all the management company finances back in-house. We used zero, but it was outsourced and I just found it more efficient to kind of do it myself. So I had to kind of remember how to do my bookkeeping work, uh, which was great fun. And then really kind of leveraging a lot of the stuff that I'd learned at Balderton. So the fund admin processes and getting on top of the quarterly reporting that we have to do. So I kind of went through how many, four times five cycles at Balderton of quarterly reporting. So I'd done it 20 times and had a bit of experience to draw on there. So one of my first goals was to sort of improve our quarterly reports, rebuild those from scratch a little bit, and just make sure that we were kind of covering the right bases in terms of what we were reporting back to our investors. That it touches on, again, a theme that's come up time and time again is that as CFO, you're trying to manage a lot of different stakeholders and you're the, the key person that often provides a source of truth and you, you're often acting as a, the person who knows the numbers better than anyone and also acts as a, somewhat of an advisor. Within a, an established company, 
very often those stakeholders would be people like Connect and, and funds that have invested in your company and you need to keep them involved. What does that group of stakeholders look like for you as a CFO within the fund? I kind of see three main stakeholders. First of all, our, our investors, so our limited partners who, who invest into the funds. Then the portfolio companies, who are ultimately our, our customers. And then the partners themselves, actually. So I have to kind of think of them as, as a stakeholder who they're one of my, my customers that I have to report into and treat them with the same level of thinking and reporting and, and everything that I, I treat with those other two stakeholders as well. That was a great tip I got from my CFO at Bulletin, Alison. He taught me that, taught me that very well. You mentioned that you engage with your portfolio companies. What form of engagement does does that take? Because I'd imagine there'll be regular things around like quarterly reporting, but where does the, the interaction work beyond that? So a lot of it is for quarterly reporting. So we hassle our companies once a quarter to try and collect KPIs. And we try and keep that process as light and as efficient as possible. So we have to kind of remember that we're not the only investor on the cap table. And there's a lot of other people who are going to be requesting their own things. We kind of have thought really hard about the information that we really, really need and how we can then go and collect that in the most efficient, light touch way possible. And actually, this is one of our kind of software solutions that we use. So we use Airtable forms to do that. And it kind of keeps a historic record of all that information, helps us analyze it, helps us collect it, helps us sort it out. And then we can leverage the insights from that data. And does that change as the companies grow or as the, based on the, the development or stage of your investment? So like if it, you've just invested, perhaps you've already seen a lot of the data, you know the company really well, so you don't need as much. But then as time goes on, maybe the value of the investment increases, so you need additional due diligence. How does that, that, that evolve over time? Yeah, it can really depend on the stage of the company. We invest really, really early at Connect. And sometimes it can basically be just an idea pre-incorporation and then the company can go for six 12 months before it even launches its product live in the market so we collect five main kpi points for companies revenue cash burn headcount and then what we call a secondary kpi it's that secondary kpi that can change over time so it might start with users and then it might move on to how much new business they're landing each month how many customers are coming into a trial we have to kind of try and stay quite agile and relevant to where the company is at the stage of time. So we went through a refresh with, with that with the partnership about three months ago and got everyone to look look at the secondary KPI and got that updated. And do you choose the, the same KPI for all companies or is it actually unique to the company? No, no, it's going to be unique to the company. Yeah. So we invest across a variety of different sectors and there are just different things that are relevant to different companies. And I guess you're looking for one of the main leading indicators that might suggest that the, the revenue and the growth will follow in a certain path. Exactly. So where a company is not necessarily monetizing, you can still get a good idea of its traction by the user growth or daily active users, monthly active users, all those kinds of things. So we track that quite closely. That data, we can then feed back into our reports and we send that on to our, to our limited partners to let them know how the portfolio is progressing. 
So I'm fascinated by the idea of the stages that you that you invest in as a as a fund where you're investing in in an idea. How can you go about evaluating an idea? Because again, we've had some other people on here talking about, of course, selling a business case and trying to persuade people. And often fundraising can be such a data-driven thing. It's very analytical. You're looking at comps, you're looking at benchmarks, you're trying to assess various metrics within the business to relative to peers to see their trajectory. But when you're at the point of an idea and there's not a lot of uh, data to go on, how do you invest in that? We invest across four main sector areas for a start. So the partners are specialists within these areas and they're B2B SaaS, fintech, consumer and digital health. They're experts within the field. And then, you know, those are really big, broad areas. But then within each of those areas, they have sort of focus areas that they're interested on. So they kind of, they start where they know what they're looking for a little bit. And then the second thing about Connect, which sort of makes us a little bit unique to some other firms, is that we invest through an investment thesis. And that is based all around product. And we invest in what we call product-led companies. And that thesis shapes all of our investment decisions and everything is assessed against that lens and whether it fits the thesis. We've kind of had it actively going for five years or so now, but it's really been heavily refined. And we recently did a great blog post on it, actually, which I'd recommend everyone to read if they want to learn more. Yeah, well, I'll need to, need to look that up. And I'd imagine that those are like mega trends. So they're not, they're not, you know, fashion trends that come in and out on, you know, a few months. Those are significant trends in society and the economy. So I can understand why that whilst they've evolved, they're, they're things that are consistent over time. Were they impacted or accelerated or shifted through the pandemic and through COVID over the past 15 months? I would say on the whole, yes. Just because I think society as a whole has been digitised heavily over the last 15 months. So more people online, more people using software. So for instance, a couple of companies have emerged out of the pandemic that we've since invested in. One of those is called Detail, which is a sort of an alternative to things like YouTube and Zoom for content creators and offering a, a sort of much better user experience for video. And then another one called Oyster HR, which is all about hiring employees remotely and hiring them from different countries. So that as a legacy practice has been incredibly difficult. So the founder there has built a software solution to make it much easier to hire people from anywhere. Now, we actually invested in that before COVID happened, which is important to say, on the idea that we thought that that process was going to come and was accelerating. But the pandemic has really kind of 10x'd it, if you like. And that company has, has seen some really good acceleration over the last few months. So we're pretty excited. Yeah, it's a fascinating area and clearly one that is only going to grow significantly over time. Obviously, the move more is back towards some degree of work, but hybrid work will be bigger than ever and international workforces arguably will be bigger than ever. So that a solution like Oyster seems to be in a fantastic category. I can speak personally from my own working experience. I mean, I've literally been into the office twice in the last 15 months, which has been like Pretty crazy. So I live just a little bit outside of London. So I've been trying to avoid the commute if I can. For sure, going forward, I don't want to be in the office five days a week. And I also don't want to be at home five days a week. So I think the ultimate balance for me is going to be two and three or three and two. So I really miss that interaction with work colleagues, coffee machine type conversations and picking up little little bits here and there about what's going on in the firm. But I also love having some time at home 
to focus on deep work, not be distracted. And I've kind of benefited a lot from that. But doing the two things sort of purely on their own, I found working at home quite difficult just to kind of create that separation between work and life. Yeah, it just all blends into one. And and the more that I speak with people, whether it's within our team, it's all or others in industry, the 2332 approach, I think is a lot of people are arriving at with some degree of flexibility or alignment, depending on if it's a big company that certain teams go in certain days. I think that you, you can see a lot of companies converging on that on that solution. You touched on something as well that digitization that COVID has produced and the fact that you you alluded to that one of the, the software solutions you use, of course, is Airtable as well. Is that like a, an approach that you apply to other things within the way that you run at Connect is that you, you try and use different software solutions, particularly within the finance function as well, because you're you're running like quite a slim team. So it's not as if you're throwing humans at, at every problem you've got. Definitely trying to make use of, of digital products for sure. The Airtable one was an interesting one, actually. So I think you sort of touched on it earlier, the idea of a source of truth. So we used Airtable to create our source of truth. So for all of our portfolio management, previously, that would have all been done on Excel. And frankly, Excel is not designed for that kind of thing. And I think everyone starts on Excel. And when you have a few portfolio companies, and you have like a, a few rounds and a few investments, it's fine and it's quite easy to manage, but it can quite quickly get out of hand. And if you don't plan ahead, you're then catching up on years worth of data potentially and trying to transfer that across. So it's been really valuable for us using Airtable. And I would say that even Airtable now is becoming a little bit tricky with the amount of information that's in it. But for anyone starting in a fund and starting a finance function in a fund is pick your software provider as early as possible and don't don't use Excel because you'll just get into a lot of trouble. Is that not heresy for someone in finance to say, like, don't use Excel? It's the, it's the, the, the holy <laughs> grail, right, to use that tool? No, it, re- it really isn't the holy grail. De- <laughs> definitely not. Definitely not. It might be initially, but you'll, you'll trip up. And it's so easy to make mistakes in Excel with things like this because you've got to check formulas and you've got to make sure everything casts properly. It's a nightmare. You can use as many clever formulas as you like, but it becomes seriously tricky maintaining it. You need to be careful with the logic of that. Jumping back slightly to the, to the selection of those ideas, evaluation of ideas on the, on those theses you mentioned. And one of the things, of course, within fintech, and Soldo is one of those companies, and of course, there are, there are many different facets of it, are tools that are designed for what some people and some VCs, particularly in the US, are, are terming the office of the CFO. So they're trying to, they're sitting on the intersection of, say, banking and software. They're trying to, in some cases, move the, some of the workflows out of Excel and into like a more of a connected environment that connects software, the analytics, and, and of course, the flow of money, which is the, the complex part because it's regulated. When you look at that, that category and that area, are those opportunities or areas that you will also contribute to that you might even engage with the partners in the fund about actually what influence you think that could have in the marketplace? Do you mean from, from the perspective of things that we might invest in or things that we might use? Well, actually both, because let's just say it's a tool that is designed to be the, the CFOs after an accounting platform, that the, the first tool that a CFO would use. 
the ultimate acid test is they would say the partner or even the, the company might say to you, like, would you use this? Would you find it valuable? And if you have a compelling answer to that, then that might suggest that others, other CFOs like you would find it compelling. So I guess it applies to both. We've been on the hunt for a dedicated portfolio management platform. We looked at a lot of systems. We've picked one which we're sort of testing in great detail. And the goal for that really is that it has to be, it can't just be usable for the finance team. It's got to be usable for the whole for the whole team and the partnership. So if the partners aren't going in and using this product, there's no point us using it, frankly. So we want to create this sort of almost like a self-serve record of truth. It will require us to keep it updated and that I'm not sure how well we can automate that data input process. That's something that we're going to have to work out. But in terms of housing the information and being useful for the whole firm, that's what we have to evaluate it against. And it can't just be something that's difficult to use, but the finance team can work their way around it. It has to be usable for everybody. But you want it to be relevant and compelling and usable for for the broader business, not just the direct finance team. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think finance has to have a purpose. And one of the main things that we try and do is leverage insights for the partners and for the partnership, giving them the right analysis that they want to see about what the portfolio is looking like and how it's shaping up and where our best investments have been and when we made them, sort of where, where that value is built around. So I'd imagine that and that touches on a theme that, of course, is relevant for every every finance team and every finance leader is the balance between the operational things that, of course, you, you need to do to run the business effectively. And then the the more strategic advisory aspects that you're talking about, they're like delivering insights on like the key parts of the of the business, which in this case are investments, as you said, that have gone particularly well and ones to keep an eye on. How do you try and strike that balance between the, the operational aspect and then the more advisory piece? I mean, that's something that we're always conflicted with in a way. Maybe conflicted isn't the right word because obviously getting a lot of these compliance reports and filings and management accounts submitted, et cetera, is all, is all like critical and really important stuff. To the extent that the firm truly benefits from a lot of that work, I mean, the answer is probably no, but we have to do it. But it's also a very high volume activity and it can take up a lot of time. I was kind of the sole finance person for three and a half years at Connect. It got to a point where I couldn't do that by myself anymore. We worked hard to leverage the team. I'm going to talk a lot about leverage, but it was sort of impossible for me to do that without having extra resource. So it was at that point that I had to hire an extra guy, Andrew. He's been a fantastic addition to the team. And it's just let us do all the kind of business as usual stuff, but also double down on the insights and analysis part. And also it's helped. There's kind of a very unpredictable element to being in a fund because it's very much deal-driven and portfolio-driven. So when there's a portfolio event, which could be like a new financing, a new company, a follow-on round, some kind of divestment decision, then it becomes all hands on deck. You've kind of got to drop the business as usual stuff. So it can be difficult to manage that from a time perspective, for sure. Because you need that, you've got certain things that you're working on, like the broader themes of the business, the oper- core operations. And then if a big deal comes in, it needs to be complete focus on that because I'd imagine that there's a huge sense of urgency in the business around these fundraising events because they're, they're often on a very tight time scale and you, you've, as ever, got more work to do than the time allowed to do it. 
the investments at the end of the day are the core part of what delivers value to to the firm and to our investors. And at Connect, we actually make relatively few investments a year compared to some of our peers. So we only do eight or 10 new deals a year. So we need to be pretty primed and ready to go when, when those come in. And what, so in order to do those eight or 10 deals, like how many would you seriously evaluate to trim it down to that 10 that you want to do in a year? I have no role in the evaluation. That's left purely to the partners. Wow, that's a good question. We must easily see more than a, th- a thousand deals. I mean, it really depends where there's probably more that, than that that come in. And then each partner will look between 50 to 100 a year in depth. And maybe we then bring 15 to investment committee. Even those numbers in it, if you're looking like a thousand deals, that, that is what I was expecting. I didn't know if it was an urban myth or not, but the one in a hundred type metric of like a hundred deals that might get presented and then you, you'll eventually select one from that. If you're looking, not even business days, but it means you're like every other day you're looking at a different deal. And obviously it's the partners, but you as a fund need to move quite quickly because you don't have a lot of time to, to say go, no go on, on this opportunity. And that is where the partner's thesis and specialisations really help. So they can evaluate some deals super, super quickly. And they know the deals quite quickly that are going to pique their interest. And also when you get into competitive situations and we need to make a really important decision quickly, they're really well placed to be able to do that. The venture market in general is getting pretty pretty hot right now in Europe and, and things that you know there's a lot of exciting opportunities that are moving really fast so that element of our thesis and specialization is really reaping some rewards and that we're able to see a deal evaluate it super fast bring it to investment committee and then build the conviction to invest a sizable check in these companies and so that in that case then speed becomes almost a competitive advantage yeah, I think so. So you mentioned the, the topic on leverage and you said you could say a lot more on how you try to like achieve leverage, whether within the team or, of course, across the fund. What did you mean by that? How, how do you approach that idea of leverage? The main goal is to try and free the partner's time as much as possible. So we take things away from the partners that they were doing. And then myself and Keji, who lead on the operations side at Connect, we take those tasks away from the partners and we run with them instead. Good example of that for me is that I've become increasingly involved on the LP relations side of things. So much more heavily involved in fundraising, producing the materials, keeping investors updated. We do like we run a quarterly webinar where LPs can come on. So I kind of run all that from a process side of things and then bring the partners in to offer their insights in a more detailed way than I could. But it's more of a kind of a project management piece where I see I can offer them leverage. Do you also work together on the, the narrative that you'll, you'll do as part of that fundraising for, for new investment? Or is it strictly focused on a, on a coordination type role? I help a little bit with the narrative side of things. I'm at a slight disadvantage in that they're much closer to, to the investment side of things and they're seeing a, a lot more what's going on in the market. So for sure, they drive a significant portion of the narrative as well. But I help out on the slides. I look at the data to support some assumptions that we might come up with. Whether or not we're able to support those assumptions is something that we have to 
evaluate whether we choose it. And then about, you know, how we present our data, what kind of things we like to show to support our track record. You know, I took the lead on doing all the slides and Keynote and Excel, etc. But what would you say if you were advising someone who was really interested, let's say, uh, worked in finance or was about to go into finance and wanted to go into fund, but in a, in a finance focused role rather than an investing focused role, how could they navigate that journey? Because I'd imagine there, there are not all that many opportunities in the fund world that are connected to finance. So how do you get to become a CFO of a fund? Maybe I can give you a quick overview of my kind of route in. I qualified as an accountant in London. I was at a mid-sized firm called Safaris, Safaris Sampness. And there I had a really broad, diverse range of clients, everything from landed estates and high net worth individuals and their businesses. And then one of those areas as well was a kind of boutique investment advisory firm. And that piqued my initial interest in sort of private finance, if you like. So I had a couple of private finance type clients and having qualified from with the ACA, I was all confident that I was a newly qualified and I'd be able to walk into a fund easily. And that just wasn't, wasn't the case, actually. I, I got quite a lot of no's. It took a good 18 months, two years to work out exactly what I probably needed to do. So I ended up taking a job with a fund administrator. So still in the kind of service environment. But similar-ish to kind of an accounting environment, if you like, you know, we had, I had a, a range of different fund clients to serve. It was really demanding. I didn't particularly enjoy it, but I learned a lot about fund structures and some of the real basics that I actually didn't know before. So I spent 10 months building up the knowledge and worked on a few different fund types. There's a private equity fund, a fund of funds, Nothing actually venture capital at all. And then after doing my time with the fund administrator, I was really more desperate than ever, if you like, to get into a fund. So I really wanted to be in-house because I kind of wanted to have that insight and access to the partners who run the fund, but also learn more about the investing side of things, but from a from a finance perspective. So how investments are structured and um the whole kind of investing environment of reporting to LPs and investing capital. I ended up getting a job with Balderton at that point. They were the first VC fund that I interviewed with. I had no idea about venture capital really at all. I was more than happy to have got into a private equity fund, but landed the job with Balderton and I had quite a junior fund accounting role there initially. So they had four funds. I was doing drawdowns and capital calls, really doing like the bookkeeping basics for the funds. But over time, my role progressed. I got sort of more heavily involved on the analysis side of things, got more touch points with the partners, helped with things like reserves planning, and more a kind of a more commercial side of things, collecting information from portfolio companies, giving that sort of back in more of a holistic way, helping prepare for, for AGMs and pulling all the kind of fund and portfolio data together. So I spent sort of five years at Bulletin, and that was really my kind of VC education, if you like. <laughs> and then felt like I hit a bit of a glass ceiling and wanted a new challenge and wanted sort of even closer access to the partnership. And that's when Connect came up and it was a three-partner team and they were taking me on as like the first employee. A totally different challenge. I went from being sort of in a, a bit of a siloed role 
at Balderton where I had a very specific number of responsibilities that I was working on to this huge holistic entire fund management company side fund side portfolio side and sort of had to navigate that so for someone who wants to get into fund finance I mean you need to find a way to build to build up the experience ahead of time and that's what I didn't have and I was a bit overconfident thinking I'd be able to just walk into a role <laughs> so you found your way to get close to and then well like kind of on the on the periphery of servicing the funds before then actually working within the fund and then flipping to I guess a smaller fund but in a far far more senior role than you were prior to that yeah exactly I guess the other question is as part of that is that so you mentioned that you've obviously had to hire someone else in and you're now trying to balance operation with advisory are there other things that you try and do to make sure like beyond like what we were already speaking about with leverage to make sure that you're very efficient with how you manage operate how you manage your time the type of tools you use beyond the ones that you were talking about because you did mention your table you mentioned that you're exploring for portfolio management but are there other things that you're also doing on a kind of day-to-day basis to try and extend your influence because you've only got a limited amount of time in the day yeah uh, i mean we place huge emphasis on trying to be as efficient as possible and again, maybe it's because we focus on products as like our, as our investment thesis, but we, we focus heavily on productization of, of our deliverables. A couple of examples of that. One is that we try and create really reusable templates. So we're not reinventing the wheel. That could be cap tables, exit models for companies, all of our quarterly reports, newsletters, updates. All these kinds of things are really re- reusable. We do use Excel for some of these, I have to say. But it's trying to do it in a way where you can turn things around as quickly as possible. And then another thing we do is we create manuals, essentially, in Notion. So we have gone wholeheartedly into Notion. It's like a big repository of information. So for there, we we lay out a lot of our processes. And because occasionally you you do something once, because it's like a unique scenario, and then these things always kind of emerge again eventually, but you maybe do it six months or a year down the line. So to have that record of the steps that we went through the last time we did this thing has proved like a really powerful tool. And it means that you get it done much more quickly the second time. If you're doing it every week, you probably just learn on the job. But when these things are slightly, there's a big time gap between them, it's really useful to have that resource written down. So yeah, I've loved writing and building stuff out in Notion, it's been a bit of a game changer for us, actually. So I'd love to talk to you about Notion, actually, because uh, there's always a debate about wiki versus lightweight content production tool, you know, versus uh, something like Notion, which is like almost on the precipice of a database, not just a wiki, because it doesn't just have navigation. And the when I was at Dropbox, we used to use Dropbox paper, like religiously, and it was, I found it a very powerful tool because you weren't spending a lot of time on formatting, but then you have, in within Soldo, we use Confluence to a huge degree. And again, I find that like really useful because you can create a structure around it where it becomes more like a wiki. So what is it about Notion that you found to be, to be so effective, say, versus like some of the other solutions that you might have played with in the past? It's got so many different widgets. That's one thing that we've found really useful. So we use Kanban boards for, for managing specific projects. That's been extremely powerful particularly for managing our just the tasks between myself and Andrew as well so if we have to prepare a capital call that becomes a card within our Kanban that's the task he's assigned to it 
He prepares it. He then moves it to, we kind of have different columns. He then moves it to a mark, please review this column. So I know then to go into it, he creates the link to the file. I go to the file, I review the file. Any comments go back into the Kanban board and I put it back to Andrew. He updates it. I review it again. And then we can say, right, we're, we're good to go. So we've used, we've used Notion for literally managing our tasks and day-to-day workflow. So that's been really useful. And it's also just really good for, uh, we use it just as a collaboration tool, like meeting pre-reads, for instance. So we have a weekly meeting with myself and Keji, who's my fellow person leading operations. We have a meeting with the partners. And at any points that we want to cover in that meeting, we have to do a pre-read. It goes into Notion. Everyone reads it before the meeting. They can comment, ask their questions, highlight points that they're not clear about, and then we discuss it. So that just means that the the meeting is purely to discuss the point that everyone already knows about, if that makes sense, rather than introducing the point in the meeting itself. And then it takes a long time to get everyone up to speed. So we've, we've found no, like Notion for that also to be extremely, extremely useful. I can imagine. I think the discipline of a pre-read is a good one to have. Although I think Amazon take it to the furthest extreme where you need to have something like a, is it a seven pager or a five pager for your, your key decisions. But that again, I think that might be a luxury of a slightly larger company than a, than a smaller fund where you're, you're trying to cover so many bases. Yeah, it's a fine balance, actually. We, we don't want to be in a situation where we're having to, to write huge amounts of content for everything that we want to get done or move forward. So that is something that we that we are aware of and dedicate a little bit of extra time to the bigger decisions, obviously, but not five or seven pages because then I think it just becomes undigestible for the users. Just wondering, looking ahead, so we're almost halfway through 2021 and as you said that you've had these theses that have, have in many cases, like play at companies like Oyster, the investments you've made, we're very, very sage, like early pre-pandemic and now the pandemic has accelerated that hugely. If you're looking ahead for uh, for Connect and then also for you within C- uh, as a CFO within finance, what is it you're excited about in the in the remainder of 2021 and as we kind of move towards a post-pandemic world? Yeah, post-pandemic world. Well, I'm looking forward to going back into the office for sure. The couple of days that I did proved really like, they were really great. It was just me, myself and Andrew who went in and we kind of unpacked a lot of blockers or things that we were struggling with a little bit. And it was super useful. What else have we have we got planned? We need to finish our sort of new source of truth software. That's taken longer to implement than we'd hoped. But that's an absolute key goal for us. And to make it, as, as I said earlier, sort of as usable as possible for everybody. And then resourcing is another thing that we're thinking about. So... Do we need to add an extra head to the team? And if so, is this someone who's going to be full-time or part-time? And what tasks can we sort of hand over to them and make sure that we have the time to do that job properly? That's the eternal debate, isn't it? It's like you you want to delegate, but you don't always have time to delegate. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I mean, delegation is something I've found out is really hard. Sort of having been that sole finance person for sort of three years three and a half years before Andrew joined I did find that difficult to give stuff up and and hand it over sometimes it was stuff that I was just very used to doing so like my nature was to pick it up automatically and other times it was more a case that I actually really I found myself that I really liked doing it 
So I wanted to keep on doing it, particularly around sort of portfolio modeling and outcome modeling. So it's like, that was my baby that I didn't want to hand over. But actually, you have to hand this stuff over, not only for their own development, but so that you can you can move on and pick up the other things that are being expected of you. And if you do extend the team, and of course, you need to be very careful of that within a, a smaller team and a smaller fund, because every, every person you add, an outsized impact, you know, potentially on culture and, and, and the vibe within the team, are there certain attributes that, that you would look for, like characteristics that would, that would make a, a good team member? Connectors, we're super small, right? We're seven, seven people, three of those are the partners, and then we have sort of two teams of two, if you like, who, who pick up the, the rest of the slack. So the person definitely, they need to be a good cultural fit for the whole team. And also, we kind of think about what we're good at and what we're not good at within the finance team specifically. And we need that person to be to be the person who can pick up the things, frankly, that we're a bit weaker at. But overall, that I mean, it, you've got to be really agile and prepared to do things that you weren't expecting to do when you came into work that day. So things can move super fast. And if you're the kind of person who's, you know what you're going to be doing and that doesn't change very often, then connect and fund finance might not be the right place for you because it can be a sort of super fast moving environment and, and things can happen in sort of unexpected ways. It's actually fascinating to hear the inner workings of a fund because you often see, of course, and, and this is right for funds, they prioritise and talk about their portfolio investments, but they don't often speak about how they operate as a fund and as a business themselves. So to hear that from you has been fascinating. So thank you very much for for joining us today. If listeners wanted to, to go and connect with you afterwards or, or follow some of what you're doing, is there a certain place that they should go and do that? Sure, you, you can find me on LinkedIn. LinkedIn is the platform of choice. As previous guests have said, just make sure you mention that you heard me on the podcast so it's not some random prospecting trying to trying to sell your recruitment software. But no, uh, thank you very much, Mark. I really appreciate you taking the time. No worries. Thanks, Ross. Enjoyed it. Thank you for listening. And if you're enjoying the podcast, we'd appreciate it if you leave a review on Apple Podcasts or share it with someone you know. CFO Playbook is brought to you by Soldo the leading smart company card and spend management platform. Learn more at soldo.com.